welcome to Unbroken. I'm Alexandra Amor. I'm an author, a coach, and a lifelong explorer of what it means to be human. This is the podcast where my guests and I explore the inside-out nature of life and the positive effect this can have on every aspect of our lives, including letting go of unwanted habits. You'll find episode show notes, transcriptions, your complimentary Freedom From Overeating and Other Habits video series, and lots more at unbrokenpodcast.com. And now, here's the show. Barbara Sarah Smith, welcome to Unbroken. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here. This is uh, part two of our series on addiction, one cause, one solution, which is your book that you co-authored with Christian McNeil. So I'm so glad to have been able to speak to the both of you. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we were just, I was just saying before we started recording for our listeners that many of the questions today that I'm going to ask Barbara are similar to ones that I've asked Christian. And I did that deliberately um, because I think sometimes from different voices and different perspectives, we can hear different things. They might just strike us in a different way. So that's the reason for that. So why don't we begin? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to discover the three principles? Okay. Well, I'm an MSW um, by education. And I have been in the field of social work in all different forms for 46 years. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, really loved it. I had a private practice for about 25, 30 years before coming to this. And um, I, I really loved my work. I had a very full practice, very full practice. Um, and, um, but about 10, 12 years ago, I really started to burn out. I thought, you know, I'm just not sure what we're doing here is really helping anybody. Cause I was seeing some people for years and it just, I, I just didn't have the same feeling. I wasn't showing up in the same way and that didn't feel good. So anyway, very long, very long story short, uh, a colleague of mine introduced me to the principles. Um, or at least she introduced me to someone who she said could introduce us to this. And I was absolutely, first of all, very skeptical and uh, extremely skeptical. And uh, but um, really no clue that there was anything that was going to be different than what I already knew after 46 years in the field. So I was, you know, I really didn't want to meet with this woman who was Annika Hurwitz. I didn't have any interest, but they wanted me to do it. And I thought I'd be nice and do it. <laughs> and when she started talking about this and, and used words like wisdom and common sense and intuition, it just really piqued my interest. And mm -hmm. that sort of drew me in. And it was six months of off again, on again, maybe not. And then finally, I think very skillfully at some point, she really recognized that I, something had shifted and recommended that I go for an intensive, which was the, the turning point for me. 
Mm. Oh, nice. And given your background in therapy and social work, and you even ran a retreat center for a while, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah. What, years, yeah. what um, is there anything you can pinpoint that that kind of helped you to, to flip the switch to see the difference between this paradigm and the pathology related one? Honestly, I would love to know that myself. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't actually, I don't even know why I stayed with it. I, I don't know. I w- didn't have the money, mm. <laughs> to, but for some reason I kept going back to it. I think in part because I was really, a, I had to keep working. So I needed to do something and I knew I couldn't do what I was doing. So part of it may have been desperation. Um, but I don't know when when the tide started to turn. I really I I've thought often about I think I still have all the recordings. I should go back and look at them because mm. something happened. And again, she recognized it, I think. Yeah. But oh, I don't yeah. I don't really know. I just know it started to sort of make more sense to me at some point. OK, great. Yeah. Thank you for that. And so then. um we're here mainly to speak about your book, Addiction, One Cause, One Solution. So maybe share with us, how did that come about? Um, yeah, you knew Christian for a while, I guess. Well, what happened was I was um, a guest on Harry um, Derbitsky and um, Greg Suki's um, pod, uh, website or um, webinar mm-hmm. called um, what addiction, alcoholism, addiction, and the three principles. So I was on that several times. Mm. And um, Christian saw me on there and got in touch with me to talk on her show. Um, And we just hit it off. And I invited her to come visit me in the Azores where I live part of the year. And she did. And she came and we were like, well, you know, I said something about I'm writing a book. She said, well, I'm writing a book. <laughs> and so we decided to combine forces and write a book together. And it was really quite an extraordinary experience for both mm. of us, um, mm. that it was just seamless. It was seamless. Mm. We we knocked it out really in in um, three months. We were We had a deadline because we were trying to get ready for the big... Uh, addiction conference that was going to be held in Minneapolis. So we had that time pressure, but we just worked so well together to, you know, we both are pretty strongly opinionated people, but we just, you know, were able to just feed off of each other in terms of really good suggestions and really good edits. And it just came together really quickly. I mean, it was really very, it was seamless, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Christian, in episode two, she explained her interest in addiction related to her um, experience with alcoholism and then sobriety. So what is it that draws you to that subject? I've worked in the field of addiction for 30 plus years. Um I came from uh, a family where alcohol created issues, um, and I blamed that for my mental health or lack of mm-hmm. many, many years. Um, and um, I really, you know, I love 
working in the field of addiction. I worked in a, num uh, a number of treatment centers over the years, and I'm a great fan of 12-step recovery. Um, I love people who get it once they get it. Um, and so, you know, it was a challenge for me. But again, I was at a place where, what are we doing? You know, we weren't, I wasn't seeing any progress in people. Mm. So it was, I was starting to feel so frustrated that, you know, is this the best we can do? You know, I would, I remember saying to some of my clients, well, you know, I know you've done your steps over and over and over, and I know you've done this. And you, but when, when do you get to the joy part? And they'd look at me like I had 12 heads, like joy, what's joy? You know? Yeah. So, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't really realize what was happening, but it was, I think, at, at a place where either I'm going to get out or I've got to find something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you said something really, that really caught my attention there about, um, you know, blaming our lack of mental health on the past, what what may have happened related to an addiction or something, some other circumstance in our home. Um, and I'd love for you to just sort of touch on that and how you see it differently these days. Well, that's, I would say, one of the greatest gifts out of this for me, um, because I got into psychotherapy personally early on um, in my life um, and really always blamed my mother's drinking on all of my problems. Um, my mother was a, an incredible woman. She was brilliant and she was funny and she was generous and she was kind, but I didn't focus on those things growing up. I just focused on the several hours a night. She had a very strange reaction to alcohol. The minute she started drinking, she would just get mean. Mm. And she could be very cruel. And um, so I focused my attention solely on that. And it became the lens through which I measured my whole life. Mm. Um, and so I really felt as though I needed a lot of therapy and, um, you know, that she had essentially ruined my life with the way she treated us. And I was still really into that when I found the principles. I was still blaming her drinking and the, you know, it was, it was kind of hard to wrap your brain around when you were a kid because when she wasn't drinking, she was just awesome. And my mm -hmm. friends loved her. But when she was drinking, she was she was really it, it was mind bending. Um, she could be very difficult. Um, so, you know, I focused my attention solely on that. Really, I, I over time, I, you know, in some of my spiritual work over the years, I certainly came to forgive her more and more and I could see her after reading like women who run with the wolves that she was this brilliant woman who really didn't have a lot of options you know um at that point in her life she went to college interestingly enough at Smith College with um Julia Child and Julia Child once wrote you know if I hadn't found what I found I probably would have become an alcoholic mm -hmm. you know I think they were bored and restless and you know so 
Yeah. So I sort of got that. And I, you know, I sort of gave up, gave her some credit for that. And, but I still believed, I truly fully believed that my mother had ruined my life. And then when I really found the principles, I realized that all my focus had been on what she had done wrong. Mm. And that kept me miserable, mm. you know? And once I saw that, it was like that was the lens through which I saw my mother. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about all the wonderful things. And what was interesting over diff- over the course of years, different ones of my sisters would say, you know, I, I thought mommy was stupid for drinking, but I had a great childhood. And I was like, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> I was horrified. No, you're in denial. Mm-hmm. You know, so all the psychobabble that went along with that kept me stuck. Mm. It kept me stuck in believing when you believe that the feelings you're having are that your entire childhood formation is due to what happens to you. You know, it's a trap. And I was ensnared in that trap for my whole adult life mm-hmm. until I learned the principles. And then I realized, no, no. Mm-hmm. I created a story about my mother's drinking and her ability. And that story was the was that it had an ability to to ruin me. Mm-hmm. And it carried, you know, I carried it around but like, a, you know, a big heavy ball and chain for, for my whole life, my whole adult life. Mm-hmm. And then it was gone. Then and it was. Yeah. And so what do you see? Disappeared. See, what do you see now about your mental health? Oh, I think I'm probably, I, I mean, I'm, I feel robustly mentally healthy, mm-hmm. even when, you know, when you get caught up in old things that may come up again. I've had several periods over the last few years of, you know, feeling depressed. But now I see that as an opportunity to explore a little bit more deeply, like, you know, wow, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago, um, I had a period of just intense insecurity I don't know you know it just sort of came out of nowhere it seemed like it came out of nowhere and it felt like every insecure thought that I'd ever had was like velcroed on me on little post-it notes you know I couldn't shake them they wouldn't go away (laughs) and it was just I went down a dark dark hole for a period of time and then one morning I woke up to this insight ah the problem isn't that you still have insecure thinking. The problem is that you believe it. And then it was done. Mm. It's like, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we all have insecure thinking at times. It's mm-hmm. perfectly normal. Uh, but I was, for some reason, during that time, just stockpiling it, you know, mm-hmm. or pig piling it, pulling them all together, and they were sticking to me. But I do believe that that was the beginning of the end. Mm. So now when it happens, and I just did a retreat last weekend, and everybody kept referring to going down the rabbit hole of their of their thinking. When I go down the rabbit hole, I don't stay in the rabbit hole very long. Mm-hmm. You know, I go down and then I come out. You know, it's like, okay, well, there it is again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. And if I could kind of say what I hear in that is that what what you 
saw going back to about your mother was that you maybe innocently believed that she could have an impact on your mental health and your well-being and what you later saw was that that wasn't possible is yes. that a fair way to say it yeah it was because it was just the opposite of mm -hmm. what you know you do in psychotherapy mm -hmm. a good friend of mine who was also a social worker gave me a set of cocktail napkins one time that said it's all your mother's fault you know <laughs> and i mean that is psychotherapy you know that is the we really didn't mean to do that but we explored a lot about what our mothers or parents or families or did or didn't do that created our unhappiness that was a major focus of it mm -hmm. and i bought in hook line and sinker mm -hmm. hook line and sinker <laughs> obviously for 40 years um and that you know seeing that that's not how it works mm -hmm. is has been enormously uh, liberating Mm. enormously liberating mm -hmm. because then you can really look at where the true where the truth lies mm -hmm. in yourself and in your situation mm -hmm. right and that gives you back all the power you've now got the power yes yeah and for those who are new to this understanding that this the way that we're speaking about this now doesn't mean that you as a child didn't experience the things that you experienced correct correct yeah there's they they still happened and they um had an effect on you at the time but what you're pointing to is looking at how you're moving forward how your thinking kept you stuck in a way in that place is that a fair way to say it yeah mm. yeah it it certainly happened i mean there was no question that my mother had this reaction but i would spend all of my time ruminating on that mm. part mm -hmm. i wasn't able to just shake it off and move on mm -hmm. and and again i think the spiritual work help me to see her within a bigger context and be more compassionate towards her life but i still believe that she had damaged me mm -hmm. you know and um i remember having that conversation with a bunch of my peers probably a year or two before i learned the principles mm -hmm. yeah so that's how long it had held up mm -hmm. it seemed so true Mm -hmm. because it was supported by the whole psychotherapeutic community mm -hmm. right yeah. yeah of which you were a part of which i was a part <laughs> absolutely yes yeah exactly um so let's switch gears slightly now and then and talk about your book one of the things that i really appreciated uh in in the book addiction one cause one solution is that you talk about variability and the ups and downs of life and how normal that is. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about this a little bit more in the context of addiction recovery and what it means um, in that circumstance. Yeah, I, for me, I think in working with addicts over the course of years, um, 
anytime there was any kind of blip on the radar screen or they had a bad day or they had a fight with their husband or their wife or they had difficulty at work, um, you know, there became this automatic um, default that would take them to um, damaged goods. Mm. You know, um, um, I have these, um, what do they call them? I'm drawing a blank now, but, um, you know, I have these um, problems that I, that I have because I'm an alcoholic or an addict. Mm. And I used to say to people, you know, alcoholics and addicts don't have, don't have a corner on the market on this. <laughs> You know, you don't, you know, just because you're an alcoholic or an addict doesn't mean you don't have, we don't all suffer from the human condition. Now, again, this wasn't within the context of the principles, but it just was pretty clear to me that every single passing mood got turned into, oh, you know, I'm so damaged. I'm just, you know, I have all these, you know, these issues that are because I'm an alcoholic or an addict. and you know, I felt like I was trying to pry people's fingers off of that, you know, and character defects. That, that's the term I'm looking for. Oh, right. Okay. So these are all my character defects. Uh, and, um, you know, so then the solution to doing to having a bad time, a difficult time, a challenging time um, was to do another fourth step, which in Alcoholics Anonymous, for those who don't know, is an inventory of basically everything you've ever done wrong in your life and as I would say to them you know like if I were really down in the dumps I'm not sure I would want to start digging all that stuff out but you know that wasn't program you know the more you could sort of self-flagellate around that I think the idea was that that was going to make you better make you humble make you better in some way and now now you know talking about it and I don't mean to make fun of it but it doesn't even make any sense it doesn't even it's not even logical mm -hmm. so I just really can see that we all have bad days we all and they're not bad days you know in the program they call one day at a time well if you had to stick you know bamboo shoots under your fingernails for 24 hours that would be a long time mm -hmm. but when you realize that we have bad moments and I have a wonderfully funny client, former client who was just at the retreat this weekend. And she actually timed it one time. She was, she went down the rabbit hole with her thinking and wanting a drink and feeling really, you know, sorry for herself and whatever else was going on. And she timed it. She waited, <laughs> she, she, was, <laughs> she waited and it passed. And she's like, you're right. It did pass. <laughs> So, you know, the idea of one of the spiritual guiding features that I have and the quotes that I have all over my office and my home and everything is this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I got that. I knew that was true. But once I learned the principles, I really started to see that this too shall pass because it is the nature of all things to pass. Mm. It's not just words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so, and we can rely on that, you know, it's Absolutely. not just something to tolerate. It's, it's a predictable experience. 
Yeah. And so grounded in, in, you know, all the wisdom that's been surrounding us our whole lives, you know, like mm-hmm. your grandmother saying, oh, things will look better in the morning. Mm-hmm. Well, they always do, you know, mm-hmm. unless you keep cranking out the same negative thinking, they do look better. They certainly look different, at least until all your negative thinking kicks in. Mm-hmm. They look different. You feel better. Mm-hmm. And I now have very physical, I, I'm really in touch with the physical sensation in my body when the thinking lets go or the, you know, the, the place where it's caught in some sort of eddying effect of, of, of your mind. Some people refer to it as a thought storm. Um, you know, once it lets go, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so there's a, a real physical experience experience of that in your body when when your mind stops doing that and you just move back into it flowing down like a a normal stream Mm -hmm. right and it it's occurring to me now too that when we like you talked about previously holding your mother responsible for for your life and your approach as you say you you have to pry people's fingers off that belief and and what that can really do, it seems, is interfere with this natural variability and flow. So we can kind of almost make ourselves stuck, you know, in a certain part of that stream, create a stickiness that doesn't need to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The stories that we write based on the outside in misunderstanding you know, keep people stuck sometimes the whole lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we can be open enough to see this, again, the freedom, you know, is just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But there are people who don't want to let it go. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they really, they really are convinced. And I, and and in all fairness, I think you know, twenty years ago, I I don't know that I would have been able to let it go either. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when we're going to be open. If I, I would love to be able to predict when someone is going to be open to hearing this and seeing this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a very lucky person who does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in, in another part of the book, you talk about, you and Christian talk about subtractive psychology. And I just, I hadn't actually heard that phrase until I read your book, um, which I reread a couple of weeks ago. And I just want to, I would love you, for you to touch on what that is and why it's um, central to this understanding that we're exploring. Sure. It's actually a term, I believe, that was coined by Jamie Smart. Mm. Uh, so we'll give him credit for that. And um, it just really rings true um, for, for both of us uh, in that when, when someone believes that they are broken and they're damaged goods or they have a disease, an incurable disease. Um, And there's all of this maintenance that needs to be done to just help you limp through to the finish line of life. (laughs) Um, That's a lot of stuff on your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have not even in addiction, but certainly in addict. Well, let's stick with addiction for now. Um, You know, if you believe you have to go to this many meetings and you have to do this much stuff and you have to go to psychotherapy and you have to do body work and and service work and 
you know, and um, that's a lot of stuff on your mind. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff on your mind about, um, you know, again, if you tell someone that they have an incurable cancer, you know, if you go to the doctor and he tells you, you know, sorry, your scan just came back and you have terminal cancer, you're going to have, or you're going to, you know, it's going to be a long haul. It's, I don't know that you'll ever feel better and you're going to die at the end. Um, and then you go back the next week and he says, oops, wrong scan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I, that's how sort of I see this, you know, like mm. this, this constant monitoring, this constant um, sense of measuring yourself against someone else's yardstick and especially the program you know how many meetings is enough how many meetings is too many how many times should she be doing this and you can't god forbid you would walk past a liquor store or, you know go to a wedding where this you know i mean just like the lack of our our ability to trust ourselves mm-hmm. and trust our judgment you know, now that doesn't mean at the beginning of recovery, it's a good idea to go hang out at a bar. I mean, that's just common sense. But I remember I had some friends once who stayed at my house. They were both in recovery. They'd been in recovery for 10 years or something. We had a half a bottle of wine in the refrigerator and they like freaked out. I was like, what do you think it's going to like jump out and pour itself down your throat? I mean, they both had very stable recovery. Mm-hmm. So it's this sort of fear-based um, lack of of trust mm-hmm. in in this in in our ability to make it through life, and once that starts to come off your mind, it creates a whole lot more space and perspective to see life as it really is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I just love that. And you given you personally give an example in the book about um how this ties in with your clients asking what they can do uh to really get this understanding and how it sort of doesn't work that way. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Um well, again, most people want homework. They want doing <laughs> right. I, I, as this client I was talking about a minute ago said this weekend, you know, I asked Barbara for her homework and she wouldn't give it to me. So I broke up with her for six <laughs> months. Um, she's got a great sense of humor. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we've been taught, you know, like, what do I say? Okay. So now what do I do? I go home and I need to practice this and I need to try to have more positive thinking and I need to, you know, and so, when we say no, you know, in fact, and I, and I think this is really important. I used to really hate getting anxiety clients, mm. which was pretty much everybody, you know, but they would come in and they would have all these, these anxious, these anxious feelings, these anxious thoughts, and they were in a great deal of pain. I, I'm not trying to, because I've had anxiety a lot in my life, but, um, you know, we'd give them, there's this big book in the field called the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook mm. and Panic. And it's about that fat. And it's, you know, and so you'd give them all these exercises to go home and try to do something about their anxious thoughts. Mm. And they'd come back the next week and just be more, 
you know, I didn't do it. Maybe if I did it right before bed and should I do it twice? You know, oh, no problem. We've got another exercise for you. Oh, okay, good. You know, and then they go home and, oh, you know, it didn't work. I just, you know, I can't. And I'm, oh, you know, and, the, you know, their anxiety would ramp up because it was innocently a setup for failure. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do about the flow of thought, mm-hmm. you know, except to see it, you know, see what you see, what experience you're <coughs> creating. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Bless you. Thank you. So once you can see that, you know, like, oh, I'm, too, you know, I'm just focusing like I did with my mother. I'm just focusing on these anxious thoughts mm-hmm. and I'm scaring myself with my imagination. Mm-hmm. And um, once you start to see that, that, you don't, there's nothing you can do about that other than to see it more clearly. And the more you see it and the more curious you get about it, the more it will show you, the more it will teach you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's information in that, you know, the feelings that you have, the anxious feelings are just pointing you towards some information about how you're using this creative, creative ability of our minds with thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you use the word curiosity. That's so great. Yeah. <laughs> what a gift, man. Yeah, I, I have to say that Someone once asked a doctor that I was working with, who who are the ones who are going to survive? I have I had chronic Lyme disease. And he said mm-hmm. the ones who are going to survive are the ones who have good detox systems. Mm-hmm. Well, mine is the ones who survive and thrive are the ones who are curious. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, when we can be curious about what's going on. Instead of having these walls that we build up with our thinking about that there's a right way to live or a wrong way to live or convinced of our rightness. And certainly I had a lot of that when I came into this, a Mm -hmm. lot, you know, 40 years of psychobabble Mm -hmm. under my belt. Mm -hmm. And I was convinced, you know, but and again, I give Annika a tremendous amount of credit because I wasn't that good at it of just her patience mm-hmm. at letting me you know bang my head against that for months at a time mm-hmm. and then eventually starting to see hmm, oh, listen, you know you, you start to hear yourself and then it starts to fall away mm. right yeah um I want to ask a question now that's a little bit unfair, so forgive me, but I wonder if you've had any fresh insights about addiction and unwanted habits since your book was published. Oh, good question. Um, I I, I don't know that they're fresh. I think they're just more peaceful that basically we just want to feel better mm-hmm. just you know we don't want to be in pain and however you get into addiction you know i know some people feel you only get into addiction because you're in you have insecure like i've known plenty of people who are plenty secure and they got into addiction because they thought it was cool or they you know so i, I don't know how we get in but i know that we want to feel better Mm-hmm. And I, I get that. 
I want to feel better. You know, I, it's the most normal thing in the world to not want to feel bad. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me, when you realize when you when you just don't know this and you think that feeling better is going to come from circumstances or people, places and things. You get derailed by that. And once you know this, if you're open and curious, um, in in AA they have a saying, or part of the slogan is how, which is open, honest, open, and willing. Mm. So if you can be honest with yourself and open and willing to see something new, mm-hmm. you know, there's no limit to what you can 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 accomplish and achieve emotionally and in your world. Mm-hmm. So I think, I guess that that's really, I mean, I just, of course we want to feel better. You know, we want our, I have an issue going on with my knee right now. Mm-hmm. I just came from physical therapy, you know, like, I don't want to feel pain in my knee. I want to be able to get in and out of my kayak. I, you know, I'm going to do what it takes to figure this out. I'm not that old. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's the most normal thing in the world. Mm-hmm. But when we jump in with this notion that you're sick and you're diseased and you have, you know, it's incurable. And again, it doesn't mean you can drink again. I just I really want to go on record as saying that, you know, there are a certain percentage of the population who cannot and should not drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Just like there's a certain percentage of the population who are diabetic or who, you know, have tremendously high cholesterol and dietary related. I mean, you know, that is part of the wisdom of this. But once you can see that it's very much a part of the human condition to want to find a way to make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. I I just have a lot of compassion for that. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah. And for all the ways that we we try to do that and then suffer because we think uh, there's something wrong with us and that's why we're doing that thing. Yeah. And so then, you know, again, then all the negative stuff, you know, the character mm-hmm. defects and, you know, I'm doing this because I'm this and I'm that, you know, and yeah, it's not a good way to feel better. Mm-hmm. No. There's a podcast I listen to, and the host is um, a recovering addict, cocaine and alcohol, I think mostly, but other things as well. And he very often casually refers to himself as, I think he says, scuzzball or scumbag or something like that. And you can hear it when he says it, that he's he's being sort of lighthearted, but he really believes that. Like he believes that at his soul, at his core there is something really defective about him that there isn't about someone who hasn't had an addiction to alcohol and cocaine or whatever. And I just always want to reach out and give him a hug whenever I hear him say that. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to share that that's, you know, that's kind of what we can do to ourselves when we feel that or when we innocently misunderstand that there's there's really nothing wrong with us and we 
Yeah. And we're just trying to feel better. Well, I understand that. I understand how that got started. You know, again, it's, it's about, you know, trying to be more humble and trying Mm. to own your stuff, you know, Mm. um, not bad, you know, not bad, but you know, one of the things that I say a lot is that in 12 step recovery, there is so much wisdom, so much wisdom. You know, I just, I love reading through the big book and some others, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. It just runs through it at its core, Mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of contamination, the Mm. innocent contamination. Mm -hmm. But again, this notion that, you know, you're going to be more humble and feel better once you you start listing everything you're doing wrong or have done wrong, you know, so you know, there's, there's a lot, there's some, some groups that are just awful in that way. You know, Mm. they just really harp on that, on everything, how screwed up you are. And again, the the goal was, and their thinking was to, you know, get you to see, you know, how, where this has led you. And, but I think there are much better ways of going about it. And, And I see the principles as a much kinder and gentler adjunct to 12-step recovery because we certainly with this understanding do not have the kind of support that's available um, in 12-step recovery Mm -hmm. yes that you know 365 days a year yeah pretty much everywhere in the world yeah everywhere in the world Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um All right. So we're coming up to being out of time here. So I want to ask you if there's anything you'd like to share that we haven't touched on yet today. No, I think um, I think that about covers it. But Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you so much for this. This has been great. Mm, My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for wanting to chat with us today. Where can we find out more about you and your work? Um, I um, I have a website, giftsofinsight.net, mm-hmm. and I do uh, work with individuals, and I love doing intensives. That's one of the things I think I was born for, mm-hmm. uh, either with groups or families or individuals, and then I do workshops and retreats. So, mm-hmm. But you can find all of that on my website. Great. Okay. And I will put links in the show notes. Uh, so Great. people can find that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Barbara. This has been so lovely. Thank you. And good. The best of luck to you with your new venture. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you found the show helpful and uplifting. You'll find all the backlist episodes and show notes at unbrokenpodcast.com. If you'd like to connect, go to alexandraamore.com forward slash connect. I'll see you next time.